John chapter 1. Our focus this morning is going to be in just verse 14. But verse 14 is part of a paragraph if you in our English Bibles. And so we're going to go ahead and read that whole section to have it in our minds. So first John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. This is the word of the living God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you in this time together in a very real way. I am absolutely inadequate to talk about the Word becoming flesh. Our minds are so finite. Our minds are so limited in understanding that how can we even grasp this? How can we even see this as reality, as truth, as glorious, if not by your Spirit? Lord, this text is so simple, so profound, and so glorious. I pray that this morning you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that I would speak clearly as I ought, that I would be faithful to your word. I pray that we would all be able to leave here saying that we have seen his glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I know that we have all heard this verse before, and perhaps some of us have memorized it, and certainly all of us are at least familiar with the fact that Jesus Christ was a human. But let us not allow familiarity with this verse to dull our hearts to the wonder of the truth contained in this verse. This verse that is so simple and so profound, and so glorious. I will confess for the second week in a row, as I prepared this week, I was wrestling with how much to get into here. The natural thing would be to cover verses 14 through 18. So what should we deal with in this text? Because there's so much here that is waiting to be uncovered. So many diamonds that are waiting to be unearthed. And in our congregation, we have people who are newer to the faith and people who have been in the faith for quite some time. Some of you were in churches that didn't offer much in the way of, of doctrinal preaching. And so there are many great and wonderful truths that you simply were not exposed to. While those who are newer to the faith, you're just beginning to plumb the depths of what the scriptures have to say. And so for that reason, I want, you, I want to let you in on my thinking. For that reason, I want to dig into just 
verse 14, because this passage contains some essential truths of our faith. In this passage and in this verse specifically, we find some fundamental truth that we must believe in order to truly be in the faith. We call that being in the realm of orthodoxy. This verse has much to say in that regard, and we will, Lord willing, touch on much of that this morning. We have three headings, conveniently. The first, we're going to look at the incarnation of the Word. Then we'll look at the realization of Old Testament imagery. And Lord willing, we'll finish with the manifestation of His glory. So we begin by looking at the incarnation of the Word. The Word became flesh. In these four words, John clearly and unmistakably introduces us to the doctrine of the incarnation. In these four words, John introduces to us an essential theme, if not the theme, of his gospel, that the Word became flesh. John uses the same word that he used in the opening of the chapter. If you remember from that sermon, it was logos. Logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God. And here in verse 14, and the logos became flesh. So let's look back then to verse 1, because John is, hasn't used this, verse, this word since verse 1, and now he's using it again, so he obviously intends for us to call to mind what he said about the Logos in verse 1. What did he say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. We talked about this in the introduction to John, but I want to put freshly in our minds again that John went all the way back to the very beginning to show that Jesus was there at the beginning with God and that he already was God. This taught us of the pre-existence, of the self-existence, and the coexistence of Jesus Christ. That is to say that He existed before all things, that He did not need anything to exist, but He caused everything else to exist, and that He existed in a perfect relationship with God. All of this at the beginning, indeed, before the beginning. We established in the sermon, of the very first sermon that we had in John, about that passage, that John is setting out to make a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He is God. We remember, well, I hope, that the main verse that gives us John's purpose in this gospel is found in the very last chapter. He says that these things are written so that you may believe. And believe what? Not just anything but to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so John dives right into the deep water. He says, hey, welcome to class. We're going to talk about eternity past. We're going to talk about deep things here, John says, in my head. That's not inspired, by the way. And here we are revisiting this word in verse 14, logos. He uses it three times there in verse 1. 
doesn't use it again until verse 14. And this is going to be the last time that he uses the word logos. Well, at least in calling Jesus the logos. It is of note that John will continue to use this word logos, and it will be translated as word, but it will not be calling Jesus the word. It will be used some 30 more times in this gospel, and almost every last instance of that word will be in connection with Jesus or God the Father. We'll file that away for later. I would also like to call your attention to the fact that John has not written Jesus' name yet. If you've noticed, so far we've just been operating with this assumption that the word is Jesus. We haven't had anything here to tell us that yet, have we? It's probably a safe assumption, and indeed it is an accurate assumption, but we haven't seen Jesus' word, Jesus' name yet. That is until verse 17, where he says, finally, that Jesus Christ, that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, truth came through Jesus Christ. John's using all of these other titles, life, light, word, but he doesn't say Jesus. Why? Why does he do it that way? I don't know. Okay, that's it. That's what I spent all week studying. I don't know. The fact of the matter is that none of us know. Why? Because John doesn't tell us. And he doesn't tell us on purpose. But I would like to wager an educated guess at why. And I want to start with telling you Reminding you, perhaps, that John is the only gospel that has this theological prologue before he actually dives into the narrative of Jesus' life. Matthew begins with a genealogy, you know that. Right in verse 1, he says Jesus' name. He goes right into the account of Jesus' birth. Mark dives right into the action, beginning with the, the birth of John, or beginning with John the Baptist's ministry. And Luke begins by foretelling. John the Baptist's birth, and then going through the birth of him and Jesus. But John here, he's the only one who sets out to introduce to us important words and themes in a prologue. Verses 1 through 18 are all about introducing the reader to very important themes that you will need to keep in mind in order to understand his gospel. Moreover, he gives us his high Christology in his prologue. We learn about his Christology right from verse 1, don't we? What does John think about Christ? That he was in the beginning, that he was with God, and that he was God, and that all things were created through him, on and on. I would suggest that John refers to Jesus in these other ways, in calling him life, light, and word, and he does this to stress the point right from the beginning that Jesus is transcendent and that Jesus is transcendent because he is God. John is showing us that Jesus transcended mere categories. He wasn't just alive. He is the life. He wasn't just a bright spot in human history. He is the light. He's not just divine he is God, and not only God, but the Word as the full revelation of God. Jesus is the one by whom God has spoken to us in these last days. And how did God speak to us 
Exactly. By the Word becoming flesh. In John calling him the Word, using that term again, he wants us to remember what he said in verse 1. Let's read those again together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Are you kidding me? The Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He became flesh. John is reminding us of Christ's deity, that He is the Son of God. In saying He became flesh, He's showing us Christ's humanity, that He is the Son of Man. So my educated guess here is that John is choosing his words carefully because he wants it to be clear that everything that he has said of the Word, all of that transcendence, all of that just mind-blowing, mind-boggling truth, all of that was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. This must be clear in the prologue because it's an essential theme of his gospel. But what about the word becoming? The word became flesh. If you remember from the first sermon, we talked about John's usage of the verb was, that it's not past tense, but it's a verb that was indicating being, that in the beginning, the word already was. In the beginning, the word already was. Not that it's past tense, as though he's not God anymore, whenever he says in the beginning, the word was God. It's not that he was and is not anymore, but it's saying that he already was. It's in indicating pure being. But now there's a different verb that in indicates to us something completely opposite to being. It's becoming. I have a question for you. Jacob was doing a pop quiz in Sunday school, so might as well keep it up. How can Jesus, who is unchanging, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, right? How can Jesus, who is in unchanging, how can he become something? To become indicates change. The unchanging one became something. Allow me to illustrate. You and I, we are not being, we are becoming. Only God is being, that He is the same all the time. You and I are becoming, we are changing. As an illustration, Gabby and I recently became parents. That means that there was a time before that moment when we were not parents. So we changed. We, become, we became something that we were not. All of us are becoming something. And if you want irrefutable proof of this, look at a picture of yourself from last year. Or worse, five years ago. Or if you really want to be sad, ten years ago. And you will see, I am becoming. For the women, you're becoming younger every day. For us men, we're becoming older and worn out. You and I are not unchanging as much as we like to claim the opposite. To be unchanging is an attribute that is unique to God. Yet here we find ourselves in chapter 1, verse 14, reading about the Word who was in the beginning, who is unchanging. The verse 1 Word 
we find out that that word became. He became something that he was not already. Notice that John doesn't say anything about the word being a human in verse 1, does he? And he doesn't mention him having a body or anything of the sort. No, the word had to become flesh. The the word flesh here can sometimes be used in the negative sense, so I want to deal with that quickly. Sometimes we use the word flesh and we're talking about the sinful nature. That's not what John is saying. Sometimes the word flesh is just a, a neutral term that's just meaning humanity or your body, and that's what he means here. This is really something that should give us a sense of pause. That the one who already was in the beginning who was with God, who was God, the one through whom all things were made, who gives light to everyone, became a man. The infinite one was born. The eternal one aged. The unchanging one became. The glorious one humbled himself. In the incarnation, the word did not ever stop being the word, to become flesh. It's not what John says. John doesn't say the word stopped being God to become flesh, or the word left his wordness behind in heaven and became flesh. No, he says the word became flesh. He became something he wasn't already, human. He was immaterial, and he became material, He did not abandon his deity, but he added humanity to his deity. He says the word became flesh. Jesus Christ is both word and flesh. That's a strange way to say it, perhaps, but the point is that Jesus walked this earth not as just a perfect man, not just as mainly God, but a little bit man, or mainly man and a little bit God, he was truly human and truly God. He was not 50% God and 50% man, or 99% God and 1% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. In the incarnation, the Word became flesh. When we are speaking of these two natures, the nature of man and of God in the person of Jesus Christ as he walked this earth, I have a $10 word for you. This is called the hypostatic union. just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? I bet every one of you is going to use that at lunch today. The hypostatic union. It's a technical term for sure, and you may never remember the term itself, but remember what it means. That in the person of Jesus Christ, we find this mysterious union of both the human and the divine. That Jesus Christ had the same nature as man, but without sin, and the divine nature. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.19 that in Him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. Of God. He was absolutely 100% God, while at the same time being absolutely 100% man. How do we know that? One of the ways that we see his divine nature on display is when we read of his omniscience. Are either of us omniscient? I mean, I am, I'm all knowing. 
My wife tells me so. That's a joke. None of us are omniscient. None of us are all-knowing, are we? No, we're not. But Jesus was. We will see it at the end of chapter 2, that he will say, John will write of Jesus, that he knew what was in man. As you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was reading the minds of people. Can any of us do that? Every husband in the room said, no, I cannot read the minds. And this human nature is on display in Jesus getting tired, hungry, and even in subjecting his will to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you see both his divine nature and his human nature on display in his life? The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith articulates what we're talking about this way. Quote, Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. The Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in him, so that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator and guarantor, end quote. I know some of this can sound a bit technical, but it's important that we grasp this, as we cannot fully understand the gospel without understanding something of the implications of the word becoming flesh. So then let's ask, why did the word have to become flesh? Why did it have to be done this way? In the garden, God created man in his own image. You know this, yes? He creates man in his own image. Everything is perfect perfect paradise, everything around the man, perfect unity with nature, perfect marriage, perfect harmonious relationship with God, everything was perfect. God warned him not to eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, because the day that he did, he would surely die. Though all things were ideal for man, even in the perfect situation, man still couldn't keep from sinning. Adam sinned, as you know. He disobeyed God's command. And Adam, in the garden, was mankind's representative. And as such, when he sinned, all of humanity sinned. All of humanity has sinned and fallen guilty in Adam because he's the representative for humanity. That is why you and I are now born with a sinful nature. It is part of our humanity that we are sinful. We are sinful in nature, but also in practice. It's part of our humanity that we're sinful, but we also continue to sin. And we sin because we're sinners. Not only do we have the nature, but we have the practice. We disobey God's commands just like who? Just like our father Adam did in the garden. And because of all of this, man is unable to make peace with God on his own. So what does God do about this? 1 Corinthians 15 
calls Jesus, guess what? The last Adam. We sang about that a bit ago. See the new and better Adam. What does that mean? That Jesus would be the representative just the way that Adam was. Jesus had to take on the likeness of man. Why? Because man sinned. He had to now defeat the power of sin by fulfilling the law of God perfectly as a man. Not only that, but Christ was to be the sacrifice for our sins. But if the eternal God cannot die, then He had to become a man so that He could die. He didn't die. God didn't die. He died as a man. And He died in our place So he died showing that he was indeed truly man and he was resurrected showing that he is indeed truly God. And he was raised up to heaven where he continues to this day, my friends, not as a wispy spirit light orb. He reigns to this day as the God man right now. But even that's not all. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. What does that mean? The Word became flesh to fulfill the law of God as a man, to die as a man, for sinful man, and to be able to sympathize with man in his weakness. He experienced the weakness of man. He was tempted in the wilderness. He was hungry in the wilderness where the first Adam had all things perfect and still could not fulfill the law of God. The new and better Adam was born into a hostile world that was already ruined by sin and he still fulfilled the law perfectly. It was the law. The word became flesh. He was tired. He was hungry. He even wept outside of Lazarus' tomb. We indeed have a high priest that can sympathize with us because the Word became flesh. Why would he do this, though? You know, in Isaiah 6, we learn in the New Testament that Isaiah was seeing a picture of Christ. What does Isaiah see? He saw the Lord on the throne. What was happening? The throne of the robe, his robe was filling the temple. The train of his robe was filling the temple. He was glorious. What else? Angels were flying around him, crying out, holy, holy, holy. He left that to become a man. Why? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, while we were His enemies, hostile to God and have fallen short of the glory of God, God the Father put forth His Son to be a propitiation for our sins out of a profound, unthinkable love for His people. Christ is in heaven interceding For you and I right now, not as an immaterial force, but he intercedes for us to this day as the God man. First Timothy two five, there is one God 
And there was one mediator between God and men who, Paul says, get this, the man, Christ Jesus. We have surely only scratched the surface of the implications of the word became flesh. Let us move on to our second point. The realization of Old Testament imagery. He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt here carries the sense to settle or to pitch a tent. It's from a word that means tabernacle. Anybody remember the tabernacle? In fact, that word is translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Guess how that word is translated? Tabernacle. I believe John is using this word particularly, specifically, because he wants to draw on Old Testament types and shadows, namely that of the tabernacle. I know that everybody in here remembers the tabernacle full well. If you could tell me about all of the rooms in the tabernacle, what the, the, the measurements of the tabernacle, I'm sure every one of you could do that right now. But I would still like to take a moment here to bring in some of that Old Testament history for two reasons. First, I think it's going to be helpful for our understanding of the depth of the meaning that John is giving us here. But second, it'll help us to see that Christ is in all of Scripture. Christ is not just in the New Testament, you know. He's not just found in Matthew chapter 1. How can we possibly know that? A few weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 2. Peter was preaching Christ. It was the first Christian sermon. Do you remember? Does he preach from 2 Thessalonians? Did Peter pull out his MacArthur study Bible? Does Peter turn to 1 Peter? No, Peter was quoting from Joel and the Psalms, from the prophets. And what's he doing? He's preaching Christ from all of the scriptures. So I want you to see that Jesus isn't only found in the New Testament. Obviously, it's explicit. But in the Old Testament, some people have said that he is there concealed. And he is in the New Testament revealed. So in the Old Testament, we have types and shadows. They point us to Christ, whether it be a prophecy or something that prefigures Christ and His work. An example is in our context here. The tabernacle. Have you ever read about the tabernacle and thought, this is a picture of Christ? Well, it is. How do we know? Exodus 25, God gives Moses instructions to construct the tabernacle. Listen to what it says. Exodus 25, 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle would be the place where the Israelites would go to worship before they had the temple. Remember, they're still wandering about in the wilderness. They have not come into the promised land, so they don't have a fixed location to build a temple. They wouldn't be doing this till many generations later. But they still were going to have a place where the presence of God would dwell, so to speak. And it was going to be the tabernacle, and it was going to sit in the midst of Israel's encampment. All of Israel would surround the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be in the center. And before the tabernacle was built, 
Moses had what was called the tent of meeting. Why was it called that? Because that's where Moses would go out to meet God. And the scriptures tell us that he would speak to him face to face as a friend does. So he would go out to the tent of meeting. But then in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is completed, God calls it the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Why did he call that? Call it that. Because of what was in the tabernacle. You see, in the Holy of Holies, which was inside of the tabernacle, you found the Ark of the Covenant. And within the Ark of the Covenant, there was the second set of stone tablets. What was upon those tablets, anybody? That's right, it was the covenant. It was the law. It was kept inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And what was on top of the Ark? Cherubim. What was in the center was the mercy seat. And above that mercy seat, between the cherubim, up top the Ark of the Covenant, this is where God said, I will meet with you. This is the tent of meeting in the Holy of Holies. This is where God would meet with man. But not only that, as you know, this is where the priests would serve. There was also the altar inside of the tabernacle. What takes place on the altar, if not the sacrifice of an animal, the shedding of blood for the covering of sins. I hope you can see how this points to Christ. All of these glorious realities are inside of the tabernacle, but on the outside of the tabernacle, it was nothing to look at. It was covered in animal skins. It wasn't until the temple that it was beautiful and ornate design. But the tabernacle was very simple and plain because it had to move around the wilderness. Isn't that true of Jesus? Doesn't Isaiah tell us that he had no form or majesty to look at? Why? Because Jesus was nothing special. Far from it. There were glorious glories within Christ Jesus, the person of Christ Jesus. But from the outside looking in, he was plain and normal looking. Not just that. Just as the tabernacle prefigured where God would meet with man, the word became flesh and met with man. He met with man. God incarnate is meeting and dwelling with mankind. And that's not it either, is it? Because he would don this body and just as sacrifices took place inside of the tabernacle. Jesus took on this body that he would tabernacle in so that his blood could be shed for the forgiveness of sins. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says that we have seen his glory. You know, in Exodus chapter 40, when the tabernacle is fulfilled, built, the Shekinah glory of God comes down and fills the tabernacle in such a profound, manifest way that not even Moses, who used to speak with God face to face, not even Moses could enter because of how full the tabernacle was of the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah glory is just referring to his manifest, radiant, resplendent glory. Would you know that on the Mount of Transfiguration, we are told in Matthew 17, that on the Mount of Transfiguration, a cloud came down and surrounded them. Why? 
Because the word had become flesh and tabernacled among us. And his glory was here on this earth. You couldn't see it from the outside. That's why A.W. Pink says, the divine majesty of our Lord was hidden beneath a veil of flesh. Jesus, as the tabernacle, housed great and glorious things. Yet outside he was plain and cloaked in animal skins. The tabernacle was. And so Christ had no form or majesty, yet he was full of glory, veiled in flesh. The word becoming flesh to dwell among us indicates God drawing near to man. Though this impassable chasm lay between God and man, here comes the God-man, Christ Jesus, to bridge this gap between God and man. He came to be among His people to save His people. It's no wonder that John says next that Jesus is full of grace and truth. The last point is the manifestation of the glory of the Son of God. He says, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Surely at some level, John has in mind the memory of standing on the Mount of Transfiguration. And also the many ways that Jesus manifested His glory in His incarnation. John gives us two ways in which they beheld his glory. In that he is the only son from the Father and that he is full of grace and truth. So the glory as of the only son from the Father, what does that indicate to us? How did they see his glory as of the only son from the Father? Well, for one, they saw it in his signs. In chapter 2, verse 11 John records Jesus' first sign of turning water into wine. And John writes, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The signs that Jesus performed were to point to the fact that Jesus is from God. That he is the Son of God. We find that laid out for us in chapter 10 at the Feast of Dedication when Jesus, the Jews are confronting Jesus as they seem, seem to be their favorite thing to do. They're pressing him to confirm whether or not he is the Christ. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 10, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. What are they bearing witness of that he is glorious? He has this, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Then in verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. His signs were pointing people to behold His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. Nicodemus in chapter 3, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God. Because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. His glory as of the only Son from the Father is also seen in Christ revealing the Father. So it's in His signs and in the fact that He reveals the Father. Back in chapter 10 that I quoted from, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand what? 
that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus lays it out very clearly for us. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Christ's glory was seen, even though he was veiled in flesh, Christ's glory is seen in his divine attributes being shown forth. Back in the opening, we learned that in him the word was life. As we have already established, that's going to be an important word and theme throughout John. We see it revisited in chapter 5. Jesus has just healed the man at the pool on the Sabbath, and he is now explaining his authority. He says in chapter 5, verse 21, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted it to the Son to have life in himself. What is that showing us? It's showing us that in Christ giving eternal life to whom he wills and also in granting and sustaining physical life, that he is the Son of God. Of God. It's obviously most powerfully demonstrated in the raising of Lazarus. And wouldn't you know that in chapter 11, when he's recounting the story of Lazarus, he says, This illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified from it. Christ's glory. When John says here that we have seen his glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, it's seen in the signs that he performs, it was seen in the fact that Jesus reveals the Father, and it's also seen in Jesus' own display of his own divine attributes. But John also says of Christ that he is full of grace and truth. Christ's glory was seen in him being full of grace and truth. Notice then, we need both grace and truth. Notice that when John, decades later, is wanting to write about Jesus, what he pulls out as glorious about Jesus is not, is not anything else but grace and truth. He sums it up in saying grace and truth. I want you to notice that there is an unbreakable chain between grace and truth. It's not one or the other. We need both. You can emphasize, overemphasize truth to the detriment of grace. And you can overemphasize grace to the detriment of truth. And when you overemphasize either one of them, you lose both of them. What do I mean? Well, we can look at the Pharisees for an example of overemphasizing truth now, can't we? They were dogmatic about every jot and tittle of doctrine, weren't they? Every single little tiny detail was raised up to the level of being sal salvation worthy. You're not even a Christian if you don't follow these things. And of course, the Pharisees weren't Christians, but you understand the point. We can do that today, you and I. That if people don't believe every single little tiny detail about what we believe about the Bible, about God, about salvation, 
If people don't believe exactly the way that you do, they're not even in the faith. What are we doing? We're overemphasizing truth to the detriment of grace. And ironically, not even holding on to truth. But we can also overemphasize grace now, can't we? God just, you know, God just loves you. God just, I heard an evangelist say that. God just thinks you're so awesome. God just thinks you're so great. He's impressed with you. We can overemphasize grace to the point where we lose truth. But Jesus comes as the full manifestation of the final word of what God wants to say to humanity. And it's not just grace. It's not just truth. It is both grace and truth. All held perfect in perfect balance in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to deal more with grace and truth next week, Lord willing. But for now, let us see clearly that the two attributes of God that John is specifically identifying decades after Jesus' life, in, in the reality of the Word becoming flesh, he sees it so profound and pronounced in Jesus that he says that it's glorious that he was full of grace and truth. I would venture to say that the very fact that the Word became flesh is evidence that God is gracious. When mankind immediately broke God's law in the garden, God could have decided in that moment to forever be done with mankind, but he didn't. What did he do instead? He covered Adam and Eve's sin, didn't he? He covered their shame by killing an animal to make coverings. And then, that wasn't even it. He promised a coming offspring that would bruise the serpent's head. Who was that offspring? It was Jesus Christ, the new and better Adam. It was the Word who would become flesh. And he didn't have to do it this way, but he did because he's full of grace. All of mankind experiences the common grace of God in that he grants them life and laughter and provision. Everything they enjoy is an undeserved display of God's common grace. But he shows his saving grace to his people, which is equally undeserved. The perfect righteousness of Christ is ours if we put our faith in Christ Jesus. But we must put our faith in him. Let us not forget that Jesus said in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. He is truth. And that means that what he says is true. What he calls sin is sin. What he calls good is good. And the way to eternal life is the way that he says that it is. So then, when he tells us to repent and believe the gospel in Mark chapter 1, this is evidence of both grace and truth. Grace in the offer to repent. Truth in saying you have a need to repent. And church, it's possible to go your whole life going to church. 80 years, 90 years, serve on every committee, do everything, tithe faithfully, read your Bible every day, and never put your faith 
in Jesus. You can be putting your faith in your own works. That what you are doing, that your church attendance, the things you listen to on the radio, the movies you do or don't watch, the pictures you have hanging on your wall, the crosses that are on your wall, you can put your faith in that and never put your faith in Christ Jesus, though you come to church. It's possible to go to church and never go to God. Where are you this morning? Have you believed in this glorious truth? Not just that it's a truth and that it happened, but have you put your faith and trusted in this word who became flesh, who is full of grace and truth? If not, I would implore you to do so today. For those of us who have, every one of us, it is true that we would be able to say, as John has, that we have seen his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending the word to become flesh, to stand in our place. Thank you for giving your only son. I pray that you would help us to see these truths as reality, as all glorious, Lord. That we wouldn't just have mental assent, but that we would grasp these things in our heart and love these truths. I pray that we would be changed by it. I pray that Christ would be glorified in our life. And we pray this in his name. Amen.